Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest for this episode is Tony King, who's here to discuss his brilliant memoir, The Tastemaker. Tony joined Decca Records as a teenager, soon becoming one of the foremost promotion men of the 60s and working with everyone, including the Beatles, that was important in the London music scene. He starts the 70s at Apple Records and forms a particularly close friendship with John Lennon. He shares with us his memories of his remarkable life and how he ended up dancing with John dressed as the Queen. Tony King, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm well, thank you very much. Considering it's meant to be the most depressing day of the year. We'll try and fight off those those Monday blues by talking about uh, your wonderful book, The Tastemaker, My Life with Legends and Geniuses of Rock Music. It's important to say, first of all, that obviously your book covers a, a huge time span and talks about a lot of people. For the purposes of this podcast, as we know, we'll be focusing mainly on the Beatles. The first thing to say really is that a lot of these events in this book take place a long time ago. What was it that inspired you to sit down and write the book now? A question of age, I suppose, because I've, I've always been pursued by lots of people to write the book. A lot of people have said to me, you know, you've you've lived through so much, you should write about it. So last year, I, um, I, I kind of, during lockdown, I had a chance to think about it and think, well, you know, if ever I'm going to do it, I should do it now. I remember Alan Klein's son, Jody, said to me, you really must do it, Tony. He said, it's really important that you do it. And quite a few people have said that to me, not just to write an amusing book, but that they said it's important to for someone who's lived through all the different periods to write about it. So I, I thought, well, OK, it's time. So I just decided it was time. And I got some help with people you know David Williams was very helpful he hooked me up with his publisher but that didn't quite work out but then I got an agent who hooked me up with Faber and that has worked out so I'm I'm a Faber writer <laughs> <laughs> what was it like as a process how was the memory was it easy or hard to write I mean, it's quite good I mean my ghost writer Tom Bromley said he thought my memory was amazing but mm. I also have on the shelf behind me, I have 50 years of diaries, so I could re- I could refer to them occasionally just to double-check dates and things. I started in 1973, I think it was, 74. Uh, oh, no, I did 72. I missed 73, which I regret because that was a good year. I started again in 74. But my memory is pretty good. I, I think of stupid old records every so often when I'm making the bed. I think, where did that come from? Let's go back to the the very beginning, if we may. And the the book makes clear that the first job that you had was for Decca. Two questions there. What attracted you to want to work in the music industry? And how did you get that first job, that first in? Uh, the attraction was Heartbreak Hotel. That inspired me. When mm. I heard Heartbreak Hotel, it was almost like I saw the future. You know, it was like it was such an inspirational record. And then I was very lucky because there was when I was living in Eastbourne, I used to go to this record store called the Golden Record Salon, and I used to clean the guy's car every week for a record. And then I got a job behind the counter. And then he had a he was working in Decca, and he said, "Did I want to come and work for him in Decca?" So I had to go to my mum and dad, who were my grandparents who raised me, and said, 
I want to leave school. I don't want to take my GCEs. I want to start working in the music business. And and they met him and they agreed to it. They just they knew that I was very strong willed, and so off I went to Decker on the Albert Embankment. I used to have to commute through Eastbourne every day for the first few years, and there I was, sixteen year old. What was that first job? I worked in the sleeve department, made what used to be called sleeves for albums. And I used to have to chase up the printers and make sure they got their proofs in on the time. And then I used to have to go and chase up the sleeve note writers because in those days they had sleeve notes on the back, you know. So I used to have to chase up Peter Clayton and Bob Boas. Bob Boas did classical, Peter Clayton did pop. But anyway, I, I that's what the first job I got. And I, as a result of that, I went all around the building to all the label managers to check on their artists and their proofs. And during the course of that, I got offered a couple of other jobs, and one of which was working for London American Records with Jeff Milne. And that was the dream job because London American was the label at the time. Everybody was, for a person who loved American music, London American was the label. It had everybody, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino, The Drifters, just everybody, uh, everybody was on London American. So around this time, not long after this, the book details that that very first meeting with the Beatles. Can you tell us a little bit about the first time that you actually met them? Well, I was no longer working for Jeff Milne at that point. I had seen the promotion department in Decker and that was where I wanted to be. And I got myself a job as a promotion man with Tony Hall. And part of the job of being a promotion man was to plug records. I have to, used to have to look after American artists who came over and then I would take them to various radio shows, interviews. You know, in those days you did everything. You did the press, you did the, the TV, you did the radio, you did every, all of it. And I had an artist called Chris Montez who had a record called Let's Dance. And we were on a show called Pop In, which was run by Keith Fordyce. And the Beatles were the guests as well. And they were in town to promote Please Please Me. So we're all in the green room and then in come the Beatles. And at that time, they just had Love Me Do. So they were successful, but not mm. huge. You know, they weren't the Beatles yet. But when they came into the green room, I went, oh, my God. You know, they really, really had a force about them. You know, there was just some, especially John, you know, I noticed John straight away. I thought, what a powerful personality that one has. And then I started talking to them and I found out they loved the same kind of music as me. And we started talking about music. And I said to Ringo and George, they like Motown. And I said, well, I can get you some Motown stuff because Motown went through Oriole in those days. And I used to get them records and send them to their flat in Green Street. We got friendly straight away and it started with that. And then, of course, I would see them at various other shows, like when they did recorded for Saturday Club. They would be down at the Playhouse Theatre on the on the embankment, and Bernie Andrews, who was the producer, said, "Do you want to pop down this afternoon? I've got the Beatles in recording." <laughs> so I'd go into the Playhouse, and I'd be the only person sitting there, and the Beatles would be recording their songs for Saturday Club, and I'd be sitting there watching and chatting to them when when they weren't recording, you know. So it just went on from that, and then I I was part of the part of the scene, of, of, as it were, at the time. You mentioned John there was obviously a, a bit of a standout personality, but in those early years that you got to know them, 
what can you remember about them individually? Was there was there a sense that you got from from each of them? Uh, George was very sweet, very very softly spoken, and a very very sweet person to talk to. Ringo was very to the point, but also lovely. No messing with Ringo, you know. Whatever he 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 just was straight to the point. Paul, I knew kind of socially sometimes because I we'd, we'd go out for dinner and he was going out with Jane Asher at the time, and he was much more the gent of the four. And John was the one who had the edge. He was the special one, if you like. And he had an edge to him that made me nervous because he could really put you down if he wanted to. You know, he was very sharp. We got along okay, but I was always on my guard with him. I, I never felt truly comfortable because I knew that he could come out with a cutting remark. And he didn't necessarily mean it, but he just said things. Oh, my goodness, you know. What about Brian? Did you get to know Brian Epstein at all? Oh, I love Brian. Tell me about Brian. Brian was a gentleman, total gentleman, and he came from a very good family in Liverpool with Queenie's mother. Brian was sort of old school show business, really. You know, he had this, he managed this band between Brian and George Martin. They had gentleman management, really. George was a gentleman, and so was Brian. Brian was very, very nice and used to have lovely parties when he ran Savile Theatre on Sunday nights. We all used to go back to his place in Belgravia and he had lovely parties and he was always very well spoken, you know. He had very good command of the English language, you know. He was a proper well-spoken man. And did you get the sense that the Beatles really respected him and got on with him? What was that relationship like? In the beginning, of course. In the beginning, very much so. You know, he mm. had he had gone to the ends of the earth to try and break them. You know, and they were so it was so lucky that they got George Martin because not only was George a good producer for them, George had all the wonderful background of doing the Goons records and Spike Milligan and Johnny Dankworth and everything. Mm. So he had a lot of intricate sound things that they wanted to use later on. George knew how to pull it all together, you know. But of course, they respected Brian enormously. Mm. Know, devastated when he died. John was, I remember seeing pictures of John and his face was a total blank. He looked really devastated. Yeah. Going back a little bit from then. So also around this time, you get to encounter, you get to, to meet the other side of the playground, the Rolling Stones. And you would obviously be very involved with the Stones past the 60s as well tell us a little bit about how you got to know the stones and and how different were they as a group from the beatles well i got to know the stones mostly because uh chrissy shrimpton who was going out with mick invited me to go and see them at ham yard and i did at first i wasn't that impressed and mick wasn't impressed with me either he was very he didn't have much to say but then I went, later on, I went to work for Andrew Oldham. When I had my interview, Andrew played me Satisfaction. And I was blown away. I thought, oh, my God, that is so fantastic. And I was telling people all about it, trying to explain what it was like. And I said, it's got a great guitar riff. That's all I can... Because it didn't come out for quite a few weeks in England, it, it, even though Andrew had the acetate, of course. I think the difference with the Stones was that they were very much a London-based band who had grown up in London. 
mm. around London and were much more familiar with London, whereas the Beatles were still quite Liverpool in their ways, and they stuck together a lot more in the beginning uh, for support. I think they were like a gang, you know. When we used to go out clubbing, all of us, we often used to meet at Tony Hall's flat. Once we knew where we were going, the telephone calls went out, and then all of a sudden all four would be there at the, at the Scottish St. James or whatever, you know what I mean? They, they stayed together, and then later on, of course, they started making their own friends, and they weren't the four-headed monster. So going back to the Beatles then, you talk in the book quite a lot about your time with them as the 60s progressed. You went to the Our World, the All We Need Is Love recording. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that day. What can you remember about that day? Yeah, I went with Patty and Patty invited me to go and she came and picked me up in my flat in Fulham. And there's a picture in the book. There's a picture of Patty and I on our way there. And she's in her wonderful sort of hippie clothes that I had. And I'm I'm in a, a caftan and a beads and the whole number all ready to go off to the to the studio. It was a really lovely afternoon, actually. There was a lot of nice people there and the atmosphere was really good. You know, I, I thought John sang so beautifully on it. Just something about the, the tone of his voice on that record was so beautiful. And it was a really... Just a very, very jolly afternoon. But it was, of course, what I forget is it was all in black and white. It wasn't until later that we saw it, how colourful it was, you know, because there we were all in our rainbow colours being seen in glorious black and white. (laughs) It's quite strange because you saw that day in colour, but it it, it took a long time for the rest of the world to to see it in colour. And it was very colourful, of course. Totally, because all the studio had been done out with things, you know, all kinds of drapes and things. And of course, in black and white, it didn't register. It just looked like a load of scarves. After it finished, was there a big party or did, did you all kind of uh, just, not, just go home? I, not in my memory, no. In my okay. memory, I think I just went off home. I, <laughs> I can't remember there being any kind of party. Just another day? A special day, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As we move past the 60s and the start of the 70s, then we find you working for Apple. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with Apple. When Apple first started, when they were on Baker Street, you know, with the with the Simon and Marika painted building. Yeah. Uh, and Neil Aspinall and Terry Doran and all the Magic Alex and the whole lot. I was offered a job then and I was working for George Martin and I said, no, no, I I'm happy where I am. I didn't feel, no, I wasn't convinced it was that professional, so shall we say. But later on, when Alan Klein came in and tidied it up, made it more of a business, then I got offered a job again by the guy who ran the publishing, a very sweet-natured man called Bernard Brown, who looked after the publishing. And, and I also saw Ringo, who said to me, come on, you know, it's organised now and you'll you'll be fine. And so that that's when I accepted the job because Alan Klein, I got on very well with. I liked Alan a lot and he was very nice to me. Always, 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 always. And Ringo was great. And Bernard Brown was the sweetest man. And I felt like I was working in a somewhat professional environment again. So that was good, you know. 
when I first started work there, we had All Things Must Pass came out when I first started. And of course, you know, that was a huge record for George. He had so many, I mean, Phil Spector's production on that was unbelievably good, I thought. The whole Things gave it a sheen, you know. It was a beautiful album. And then there was Bad Finger, you know, so it felt like a proper office, you know, proper organised office. It wasn't so hippie anymore. What was your actual role at Apple then? What was the, the job title? I started out as a promotion man, for promoting the records. And then I, Alan Klein offered me the job as A&R director. So as part of that, there was an article went out in the newspapers that I was looking for new talent. Oh, place got inundated. The poor Laurie on the switchboard, you know, the wonderful Laurie who said, Apple, good morning, and that wonderful voice. She got lost her wonderful voice, and I had to deal with all these mad people coming in who said thought they were the next big thing, and it just turned into a bit of a nightmare, to be honest with you. You know, I said in the book, I had one bloke come in that he told me he was God, you know, and I said, oh yeah, okay, fine. And then the next day, a bloke came in and he says he was French, and he said, I have something I have to tell you. Very important to you. He said, I am Jesus Christ. I said, oh, I had your father in yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely couldn't resist it. It died down after a while, so it was fine. That was in London initially. And, and then you, you went to the States not long after that? Or what was the timeline there? I started in Savile Row. And then I went to St. James's when we had the office in St. James Street. And at that time... Ringo's album was 73, wasn't it? We'd moved from Apple by then, hadn't we? I had a friend in Capitol Records called Dennis Colleen who had been over to visit me in Apple and he was very impressed with me because he realised that I was kind of sensible, I knew what I was doing. And there was some confusion in Capitol about Ringo's album, the artwork and this and that. And they needed someone to help. So Dennis Colleen said, there's this bright guy in the office called Tony King. I think we should send for him. So that's what happened. I got sent for and worked on Ringo's album. I managed to pull all the artwork together, all the Klaus Vormann drawings and the, the recording itself with Richard Perry and everything. And basically, I pulled it all together and got it all organised. And I was just getting ready to leave because I thought, okay, I've done it now, I can go home. And I got a phone call from May Pang, and she, who I knew as John and Yoko secretary in, at Apple, and she said, oh, uh, could you hang on? John's coming into LA tomorrow, and he's got an album. He wants you to help do the same thing that you've done for Ringo. And I went, oh, okay. I wasn't entirely thrilled by that, because I thought, Oh, working with John, you know, he's, I, my memories of John was this rather slightly edgy character. I was a bit nervous of. Mm. But when I ended up meeting him, he was so sweet and so different. He'd been through the primal screen therapy with Yoko. I think his time with Yoko and his time doing all that had affected him positively. He was quite sensitive man you know quite different to what i remember him in london we we got along straight away was able to help him quite a lot it's lovely that you brought it onto it because i think the real heart of the book for me 
coming coming at it from a Beatles viewpoint is your time with John in this 73 74 period so let's talk a little bit about about you and John the first time that most people may be listening to this podcast would have seen you is in the 1988 Imagine film where there's the clip of you dressed as our late Queen Elizabeth II being photographed by Elton John and dancing with one John Lennon. So that obviously was the advert for the Mind Games album. That little clip of you appears in the Imagine film, so it's probably familiar to most listeners. Please tell us a little bit about how on earth you ended up dancing with John dressed as the Queen that day. Well, first off, I made a few days before I made a tape with Mike Hazelwood, who I was staying with. Mike Hazelwood wrote The Air That I Breathe for the Hollies and he wrote Little Arrows. I was staying with Mike and one night we smoked a couple and we I started doing an impersonation of the Queen doing mind games and Mike was laughing. And so the next night we played it to John and who was in fits of laughter. And then he, the day after he calls me up and he said, I want you to do that dress as the Queen as an advert for my album. And I went, are you serious? And he said, yes, very so that's what happened. I ended up having to go to Western costume and get rigged out and get a crown and got makeup people and they rented a big studio. There was a big production and Jimmy Iovine was there. I, Elton said, because by this time Elton and I were very friendly too and because we'd met at Dick James Music and we had become firm friends. Elton called me up. He said, what are you up to today? And I said, well, actually I'm doing an advert dress as the Queen for John Lennon. Oh, are you? So I said, yes. He sa- I said, do you want to come? So I said, yeah, I'd love to. So I said, I'll tell John. So I said to John, I've asked Elton to come. Is that okay? And John said, yeah, I'd like to meet him. So Elton was, by this time, was like huge all over the radio. It was just ridiculous. It was Elton John time. So Elton shows up. And I'm in my crown and in my makeup, but I did my jeans and my T-shirt on because I hadn't got into my dress yet. But I did have my crown on and I did have my makeup. So I had to introduce them like, John, this is Elton, Elton, this is John. Hello, hello. And that was how they met. That's the first time they met that day. Yeah, that was the meeting. That was their first ever meeting. What was their friendship like? What was that relationship like? Oh, in humorous very humorous they used to laugh a lot together and john really liked elton because elton was a when he got elton to sing on whatever gets you through the night he was very impressed with how quick elton was to get things done you know one thing led to another and of course they ended up doing madison square garden together which was the greatest moment of my recording life and an Elton's greatest moment too, I think. Both of us say that was the peak moment of our career for that night at Madison Square Garden was so special, you know, to have John walk on and the ovation that he got was unbelievable. I've never heard an ovation like it. And he looked around at the band as though to say, what's going on? And the band went, they gesticulated like it's all for you it's all for you and so that was a spectacular evening and then afterwards we had a nice party at the pierre hotel and then we went up to the uh suite and i i think a little bit of white powder was going around at that time (laughs) 
we were having just such a great time. That was when Andy Warhol tried to come to the suite and John looked through the keyhole and he said, it's Andy Warhol, don't, don't let him in, don't let him in, don't let him in. He said, because he's always taking photos with his camera, he's always taking photos. What was your actual involvement in that night then? What was your role in, in that Madison Square Garden night? Pulled it together, to be honest with you, because I was working for John. Elton was my dear friend. I had sailed to America on the SS France with Elton and his band, staying at the Pierre Hotel, went up to see John because I was working, I would come over to work for John. So we went up to John's suite. He said, do you want to hear my album? We said, yes. At the end of the listening session, he said, do you want to sing on anything? So Alan and I looked at each other and we both agreed that whatever gets you through the night was, was the song to do. So he said, well, come down to the studios. And uh, we did. Two or three nights later, we had dinner with the people from MCA and then we went to Record Plants to do the, do the track. And it was done. And then I went off to California where I was based working for Apple and we played it to Capitol and they at first there was some debate whether we go for number nine dream or whatever gets you through the night but obviously because of Elton being so big we went with whatever gets you through the night and then during the course of Elton's tour he calls me up and he says do you think John would do Madison Square Garden and I said well that's a pretty big ask but I will ask. So I said to John, I've had Elton on the phone. He wants to know if you'll do Madison Square Garden. What do you think? And he went, hmm. I'll tell you what. He said, if the record gets to number one, I'll do it. Never thinking that it was... He didn't really think it was going to be a number one record. He thought it was nice that he had a hit. Number one was something else. Anyway, the, the upshot is that it went to number one. One week, but it was still number one. So I had to call John up and I say, guess what's number one this week? Your record. Oh, does that mean I've got to do Madison Square Garden? I said, well, you did say you would, so it's up to you. And he said, okay, I'll do it then. So I went back to Elton and I said, he's, he's going to do it. So Elton said, well, if he wants to do it, which is great and exciting, he has to see the show to know what he's getting himself into. So we flew up to Boston on the Starship, the private jet, and we went to see Elton's show in Boston, and we were behind the stage. And we watched the show, and John was looking at me, and he said, I can't believe the sound on this show. It's amazing. He said, is this what it's like now? When we did Shea Stadium, we couldn't even hear ourselves. He said, the sound is fantastic. He was very impressed with the sound. And at the end of the show, because we were behind the stage, Elton came out with this outfit on that was like a bib with little shorts and it was pink. And he curtsied to us and we both burst, we all burst out laughing. And then we flew back to New York on the Starship and we said, okay, we've got to rehearse. So we rehearsed down at Jimmy Iovine's play. Anyway, we rehearsed and during the course of rehearsals, Elton said, do you want to do an extra song? And John's Elton said, do you want to do Imagine? He said, no, I don't want to do anything like that. I would like to do, I saw her standing there, one of Paul's songs. So we said, okay, fine. So we re rehearsed it, went fine. 
And that was really how it happened. And then on the on the day in question, I had to John came to pick me up at the Cherry Netherland Hotel where I was staying. We went off to Madison Square Garden. John got ready to go on. And prior to that, I had had a phone call from Yoko, who by this time I'd gotten to know. And she said, I'd like to come and see John, but I don't want him to know that I'm there. And I said, well, that makes sense because I don't think he'd be, I think he'd be very nervous if he knew you were there. She Mm. said, get me a ticket, a couple of tickets, but not too close. So I got her 11 rows back, I remember, with Gary Lejewski, a friend of hers, who ran an art gallery. So Yoko went, and then before the show, we were sitting there, John looked very nervous, and then this beautiful dish arrived with these two gardenias. And I said, oh, look at these lovely gardenias, and from Yoko. John said, oh, yeah, he said, she loves her gardenias. He said, I couldn't do it if I knew she was here. And Elton looked at me wide-eyed, and I looked back at him wide-eyed, and we both went, oh, okay. Before the show went on, I said to John and Elton, I said, why don't you pin the gardenias on and as a nice little that nice little gesture, that you, knowing yeah. well that Yoko was going to see them. And which she did. And Elton lost his quite early on because he was all over the place. But John's, all the photographs of that show, you will see the gardenia in his um, lapel. So afterwards, Yoko came back and John said, oh, you were here. And she said, yeah. And that I think that was the night that they kind of started to reunite again. You know, they're not straight away. There was something in the air with them. You know, there, there was a a feeling that they were possibly going to be getting back together. Just a feeling. So that's Madison Square Garden for you. What a story. Do you you know why it wasn't filmed? John Reed decided it was too expensive to film, I think. Brian Forbes, who was a filmmaker, friend of his, friend of his and Elton's, wanted to do it. And they just decided it was too expensive. I don't, I don't. I don't even like talking about it. I get so upset because I would so much love to see that film. Yeah, you can tell people about it, but just to witness it on film would have been so spectacular. So, very quick, slightly separate question is: there's a a really well-known picture of you which appears on the front of your book, which is with you flanked by John on one side and by Ringo on another side, and there aren't many people that get to be in a picture with two Beatles. Can you just tell us a little bit about where that picture was taken? And arrived in America, and I had just, after being in New York with Elton and John and doing whatever gets you through, I went then went to Capitol Records to claim my office. And I had this office that had nothing in it. They'd given me an office on the third floor in the classical music division, nothing in it. And so John and Ringo came to visit me and they came into this nothing office and May Pang took the photograph and they subsequently wrote a note requesting things for the office. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about what's on that note? There's things to do to doll Apple Capital office, paint it, good record radio, player, cassette, etc. Couch for visiting Beatles at all. <laughs> Coffee table, fridge, drinks, 
Bam for John, it's hot. These demands must be met or we will shoot the hostages. <laughs> With love if you do it, John, and a little Star of David type of thing, John Lennon Ringo signature at the very bottom. Wow, that's amazing. So that's where that photograph was taken, and I've got a huge print of it up there that May gave me from her gallery. What a brilliant uh, picture. You must treasure that. I do. I treasure that, and I treasure what's behind me up there, which is a collage that John and Yoko made for me on my birthday. Tell us about that. I, was, I went round to the Dakota, because I used to work at the Dakota sometimes when I was in New York. And they had made this for me for my birthday. And they put all the pieces together and made this collage. And then on the back it says, To Tony with love and happy birthday. March the 14th, 75, her royal hijinks. John and That's brilliant. A few last questions about, about John, if, that, if that's okay. Obviously, at this point that you were working with John, he was with May initially. Can you tell us a little bit about, about their relationship? May was very good for him. She took care of him. She cared about him. She was very smart. She liked the music business a lot. She made my job a lot easier. She helped me to do things. And John really had a lovely time with her. Their time together was very nice, I think. I, I think it left her rather sad that it didn't go on, you know. But I think his love for Yoko was very different. You know, mm -hmm. Yoko is an extraordinary person. I always remember John making sure that I met her when I went. He said, I want you to go and have meet Yoko because she's a great lady. And I remember the great lady thing was important. Not many people get called a great lady. You know, when he said that, I thought, oh, she's very important to him. And she was, she was much more cerebral, you see, much more. And John needed that. He needed that cere cerebral stimulation. But he also had a nice, beautiful, hot girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> she was very hot, May. She was great looking. She, she dressed well. And she was good fun. She was a really good fun. I, lo I love May. And I, May and I are still in touch. That's and she great. gave approval for her photos to be used in the book. I love May. She's a good. She's a good person. She's a very good person. So the other thing to sort of move toward a conclusion is you. You talk in the book about I think if I'm right, I'm saying the last time that you saw John was you went to see him in the Dakota in '76 with Yoko. So I was in New York for my birthday, 1976, and by which time Sean had been born. So I called John up and I said, I'm in town. And he said, do you want to come over and we go out? So I said, sure. So I went over to the Dakota and we went out for a walk. And Sean had, Sean was on Yoko's uh, back like, like a papoose, you know. And they were fussing over him and everything. And they were so devoted parents. And we went and had tea and chatted and then we came back to the Dakota for a while and sat around talking and then I said okay it's, it was time to go so they had these lovely sort of double doors where you walked into Dakota and 
my last memory of John was him standing in silhouette in the open doors and he sort of went toodaloo and that was the last I saw of him and they gave me a book called Sugar Blues which was all about they were on, on a, a no sugar thing and they signed that for my birthday and they gave me that book so I have that little memory rather sweet memory and then when John did his BBC interview they asked him how he knew Elton and he said, oh, we have a mutual friend, Tony King. You know, I got, I got a mention. He was such a beautiful soul. He really was such a beautiful soul. Were you surprised that he decided to stop recording in the mid-70s? No, because we were going to record. We were starting to round up musicians and he wanted to, to try to make an album with some black musicians, you know. And so Carlos Alomar had started to round up people for us. But then he took me for coffee in the Park Lane Hotel in Rumpelmeyer's, the coffee shop there. And he said to me, I've got something to tell you. And I said, what is it? He said, Yoko's going to have a baby and I'm going to stop working and I'm going to devote myself to her because the doctor tells us that the only way she's going to get through this is if she goes to bed and stays there and doesn't get up. So that's what happened. And um, I moved on to Rocket Records. That was the end of my, my time with him. And then he sort of locked himself away. I wouldn't see anybody. I saw him in 76, but then he suddenly disappeared and became this house husband and didn't want to see people. And I think in the end, it just got to the point where people like Ringo would have to say, hi, come on, you know, can't ignore me. <laughs> and I think he did see Ringo, but he, he, I, whenever I tried to call, I was always given the brush off. He had a woman working for him, Helen, I think her name was. And she was a cow, putting it bluntly. She was a cow. She, was, she just brushed me off like I, I didn't mean anything. And I wanted to say to her, hey, hold on a second, I've worked with this man and I've done a lot for this man. Don't treat me like I'm some groupie. She was such a cow. Okay, well, just one last thing to to ask you, Tony, really, is uh, obviously you you worked in the music industry just before, during and after the Beatles. How do you think they they changed everything? What was the biggest thing that that happened because of the Beatles in, in your experience? Writing songs. Because before that, everybody was doing cover cover versions of American hits. And then along came the Beatles and they started the cult of songwriting. And then when Andrew Oldham pushed the Stones to write As Tears Go By. But the Beatles were songwriters. And that's what they started more than anything, I think. The cult of songwriting. How brilliant they were at it. Brilliant songwriters. Absolutely brilliant. Strawberry Fields Forever, the lyrics of Strawberry Fields, the imagery of those wonderful videos they did with the Swedish guy in the park when they got up in the tree. I went out, I went out that with them. That, I went out with George that evening. We went to see, I think we went to see Eric Clapper Cream because they made that on a Sunday. And then Brian had one of his, um, uh, his evenings because he had cream at the uh, Savile. We went, I went with George and Patty to see cream. But he said that they'd been in the park with this Swedish producer 
Anyway, yeah, songwriting, really, songwriting. Well, Tony, thank you so much for, for talking to us. It's important to also say that uh, there's so much more in the book, apart from the Beatles. It's definitely worth picking up. Tony, thanks so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Good night.